Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. I'm going to start tonight by polling the audience of everybody who has taken biblical Hebrew. And I want to know, I want to know if you have taken biblical Hebrew, um, was the Koheleth Solomon? If you think the Koheleth was Solomon, raise your hand. Okay. Well, uh, the Koheleth was the preacher of Ecclesiastes, and he famously said on uh, Ecclesiastes 12.12 that, sorry, i got to get my notes out. They're here somewhere. Of making of many books there is no end, and much study is weariness to the flesh. How many of you ever heard that? Okay. Well, whether it was Solomon who said it or not, and I'm looking at my four guys who should have said, so the Koheleth wasn't Solomon. Raise your hand if you think that. Okay, I'm going to call him Solomon, and we're going to say Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes because that's what we're going to say. (laughs) And since his time, people have been writing apologies for their works, whatever it was that they're written. Uh, This is common for books on prayer, for example. If you go and you look at books on prayer, there's usually an apology at the beginning you know, I was a little worried about writing a book on prayer, but I really felt like I needed to. It's like, okay, well, we know that you needed to because you wrote the book, right? And there is a sense of us as readers, as we pick up these books, we're like, oh no, oh my goodness, not another one. But there's also comes a sense of, oh my goodness, we can't have another interpretation, an interpretation of this, an interpretation of that, of X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And the current favorite book writing topic that needs another interpretation is the topic of postmodernism. Yes, this is the lesson that I have been fearing since I started preparing this series. And The problem is, is that with postmodernism, we have an intentionally, I'm going to use a fancy word here, obscurantist pseudo-philosophy. We have something that is on purpose difficult to understand. The authors of who are in this postmodern group are trying on purpose to be as unintelligible as they can. And you know what? They succeed. Every time you can't understand what on earth these people are saying. So, in preparing for tonight, I have been struggling um, with what you are about to hear. In fact, I was thinking about this uh, tonight, right before the service started. I don't think I have ever prepared as much for a lesson and still felt so unprepared. Uh, So, be that as it may, we'll see what happens with it. And several of you in the last couple weeks, it's more than one of you, have said, 
Now, Greg, when you're preparing this message on postmodernism, make sure you tell us what modernism is first. And I think that's been kind of bouncing inside of my head and trying to think, okay, well, what am I going to do? Because there's a valid point to that. And the truth is, I've never really been sure of how I was going to approach tonight until Friday when I was sitting there at my desk at home thinking, okay, what am I going to say? So what I came up with is what you're about to hear. And my apology for it, and this is mostly for my professors who are going to be listening to this, is that I used James Sire, the universe next door. I used Moreland and Craig, philosophical foundations. And I used Stephen Hick explaining postmodernism. You guys can forget all that. Uh, but know that I read a lot of words. Now, my apology to you is I had no choice but to make the lesson you're going to get tonight and next Sunday night outrageously oversimplified. In other words, some of the things that you're going to hear tonight, you're going to say, what? And there's going to be two reasons for that. And I want you to understand one of the reasons for that is because I am being outrageously oversimple in a lot of the things that I say. And several of you I know will say, oh, but you didn't mention this. Well, I may have just skipped over this because I didn't have time to do it. Or I may have skipped over this because all this is really difficult stuff anyways. But the second reason why you might be scratching your head by what I say tonight is that we are going over ground tonight and next Sunday night that is just by nature difficult to tread. Um, But what I want you to do is I want you to get at least two things out of tonight and next week. And I'll try to remind you of this next week as well. Postmodernism, this is number one, is the result of the history of Western philosophy that has been trying its darndest to escape the fact of a creator God. That's the first thing you need to know about postmodernism. Postmodernism is the, it's the seed, it, it's the going to seed of Western philosophy for the last 2,000 years trying to avoid the fact that there is a creator God. And what they have settled on, secular philosophers, at least for the moment, is a denial of the facts and a refusal to obey the law of reason. When people start saying they're inane postmodernism, postmodern mumbo-jumbo, what you have to understand is that they're just trying to escape the facts that they know they can't get around. The second thing that you need to understand about postmodernism, what I hope that you gain out of tonight and next week, is that postmodernists offer some excellent criticisms of Western culture. They have some very good points to say about how we as a culture think and live. But what else you need to know is that Christians, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, thoughtful Christians have been offering these exact same criticisms for centuries. 
and that neither pre-modern, modern, nor post-modern philosophy is an accurate reflection of Christian theism, that is, a Christian belief in the Creator God. Now, my last apology for what I'm going to say tonight is this. When you go to the Bible, you will always find one of three kinds of applications. And if you're not finding one of these three kinds of applications, then you're not actually going to God's word. You're just allowing God's word to go under your eyes. You will always find one of three kinds of applications. One thing that the Bible will command you to do is to change what you're doing. You need to live differently. And that might be an application you find in Scripture. We find that all over the Scripture in various commands. Another one that we commonly find uh, as an application of Scripture is a change in our attitudes. A change in our attitudes is one of the three common ways that the Bible needs to be applied. And this counts for us who have been Christians now for 22 years, some of you longer than that. And we still have attitudes that we need to change. But the third way that the Bible, one of three ways the Bible can always be applied is a change in how we think. Because how we think will ultimately determine how we live. In fact, uh, John Calvin is famous for saying at the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, two things we have to know, and that is God and ourselves. And how we think about God and how we think about ourselves is central to almost everything we do. So, what I'm doing in this series is not only fulfilling a requirement for my doctor of ministry program, but what I'm doing in this series, hopefully, is helping us to think about how the world thinks. Now, when we get through postmodernism uh, next Sunday night, then we'll get into much more practical, pragmatic type stuff when we talk about ethics and we'll talk about how we go about making decisions. But we have to have this foundation before we can ever get to how to rightly think about ethics. There's another thing to be considered here. Most of the people in this room were born before 1960. 1960 is not a magical date, but it is a watershed of sorts in American culture. And I think many of you in this room could tell me better than I've been told in the past that how the United States culture operated before the 60s was fundamentally different than how the United States politically, uh, culturally, economically operated since then. And part of this watershed, and I'm Again, I'm being outrageously oversimplistic, but one of the great aspects that changed American culture was this shift, uh, first slowly and then very rapidly in the 60s and up to today, to a postmodern mindset. 
And so most of you in here are still operating because it was how you were brought up. It was the ocean you swam in, in a modern mindset. What I want to warn you about as we go through this is just because something is modern or postmodern or pre-modern for that matter does not make that thinking Christian. You get that? We're used to modern thought, and I actually count myself to be uh, more of a modernist uh, in my uh, upbringing than a postmodernist. But that doesn't mean that modernism is right. Modernism, as we know it, is all too often a combination of naturalism and for us, a healthy dose, hopefully, of Christian theism. Now, if you take out your notes, I included uh, the sheet, the side of the sheet that is almost completely filled, and its top says getting a good view of things. And what I did is I wrote out each one of uh, Sire's eight questions that are worldview answers. And then underneath each of those questions, I wrote the two answers that we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. The first one in each case is the naturalist's answer. And then the second one, and in one there's three, and the second and third on that one, is the Christian theist answer, the person who believes in the biblical creator God. Uh, if you believe in the biblical creator God, you are a Christian theist. And one of the traps that the American Christians have fallen into, and I don't, even, I don't even think of it so much in terms of blame because it's, it's the ocean we swim in. But one of the traps that we as American Christians have fallen into is adopting some of the naturalist presuppositions, some of the naturalist thought processes before we ever even get to the Bible. Now, I'm going to identify two of those for you. And what I want you to do is when, you, when I identify these two is I don't want you to think, oh, well, I don't believe that. Because on the top of your brain, on the, on the surface of the brain, I think all of us would agree just by looking at this, at these worldview statements, oh, pff, that's not me. I don't believe that. But as you know, the surface of the iceberg is only a small portion, and underneath is the iceberg that sank the Titanic. And I would say that many Christians, not all, I'm not saying all, but many Christians fall into a couple of traps. And one of them that I want to identify is number two on the question, what is the nature of external reality that is the world around us? And all too often, Christians act as if the naturalist answer is correct. The cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Now, hopefully, some of you are thinking right now, okay, Greg, what's your proof? Why do you think that Christians fall into that trap? Well, my proof is what I identified three weeks ago when I brought this up, is how many of us struggle with thinking that God is going to actually answer your prayers. 
Boy, that hurts, doesn't it? Because the truth is, every single one of us has been there. And the truth is, every single one of us is there far more often than we want. And that attitude, that thought process, that worldview that bleeds out of us, I'm not sure that God really is going to answer my prayers. Is this naturalist answer? The cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. God really isn't going to step in and save the day. My friends, I I, I know, I know, I know, the vast majority of us in here, on that surface part of our brain, we're like, man, I pray all the time. And I I know God's going to come through. I get that. But it's that sub waterline part of us. The other one that we fall into, again, not all of us, but enough American Christians that it is a problem is number seven. What is the meaning of human history? And the naturalist answers, history is a linear system of events linked by cause and effect but without an overarching purpose. You know how I know this? By going through the church on Sunday and overhearing and sometimes taking part in conversations about whatever's on the news, you know, and thinking, oh my goodness, there it goes. Everything's going to the doghouse. All I've got to do is name a handful of issues and every single one of our blood pressure is going to go up. Abortion, the president, a handful of other issues. And whether you're for it or against it, your blood pressure goes up because you are convinced that everything's bad. My friends, the truth is, is that history is linear, a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes for humanity. That's a hint. You ought to be saying amen to me. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. Now, America may be feeling some of the wrath of God for our sinfulnesses, but that doesn't limit the fact that God is still in control and that we need to repent of a naturalistic worldview that says that, oh my goodness, everything's bad. And so with just these two examples, what I would like for you to do as an application to this lesson is to change how you think. Take this sheet home and compare it. And honestly, ask yourself, ask Jesus to help you in this and say, Lord, when I'm considering what is really real, is my knee-jerk reaction naturalistic or is it more of a Christian theist, someone who has a, a trust, a belief in the biblical creator God. This, I know that for some of you are just thinking, man, this is heady. This is too much thinking. But my friends, this is important stuff. It's not just stuff that preachers go to school to find out about it. I believe that part of the reason why the American church is not more effective than it is is because we, you and I, have unfortunately bought way 
too far into the worldview of the naturalists. Well, and actually, I'll give you another example of why this is true. It just, it just dawned on me. Um, Tom today loaned me, gave me, I'm not sure which, a book by Nancy Percy. It's called Total Truth. And the subtitle of this book is Redeeming Christianity from the Cultural Chaos or something like that. But Redeeming American Christianity from the worldview around us that all too often we have bought into. This is not just academic ivory tower stuff. We're spending several weeks talking about this because I want to change how we think about how the world around us thinks. Okay. Now, tonight, and actually mostly next week, as we get into uh, answering questions Uh, to help us get at the heart of what postmodernism is, I want you to notice that I'm only talking mainly about three questions. And if you look on this side of your sheet, the one that doesn't have as much writing, (laughs) next week when you get this again, there'll be more writing, I promise. Um, (laughs) There's three primary philosophical questions. Ontology, that's the the study of what is real, what is real, and then epistemology, what can we know, and then lastly, ethics, what is right. And we'll be spending at least two or three weeks just talking about ethics starting in a couple of weeks. But I want you to know that tonight I'm not going to address all eight questions. And and there's several reasons why I'm not. One is because The whole idea of the eight questions, the postmodernist just throws out. Says, I don't care, whatever. But every philosophy, every system of thought, maybe you should not hear me ever say philosophy again. Just think system of thought or way of thinking. Every way of thinking has to address these three questions. If it doesn't, then... It's nothing. It's just somebody's babble. Um, And so every philosopher worth the title philosopher since way before Socrates has considered these three questions. Now, whether they had questions that or answers that were coherent, whether they had answers that were consistent, that's a whole nother question. And I'm not even going to attempt to answer that. But what I want to show you is the three most important questions that philosophy needs to answer. And again, I told you I was really struggling with how do I present this, and it finally dawned on me uh, that the way I ought to present it is by looking at the different eras of philosophy, the different eras of ways of thinking. And as it turns out, uh, I've only listed three, the pre-modern, the modern, and the post-modern. But part of that is because I knew I wasn't going to have time to address the ancient. But let me give you, I know you're going to forget this, but you can write down notes if you want. I just want to give you a sense of history right now. I want to give you kind of a timeline so that you have in your head what's going on with this ancient, pre-modern, modern, modern, and post-modern where we're at today. 
So let me give you the four primary ages of time. The first is the ancient. uh, It's also called the classic period of time. And the classic period began roughly at the birth of Rome. Rome was founded in 753 BC. Now, the birth of Rome itself was not so enormously uh, important because Greece had already been going on for several hundreds of years. And there had been, of course, people all over the place. But it turns out that 753 is an excellent time frame to begin with because that was when in Greece there first became people who were what we could consider philosophers. This is long before even Socrates came, about 300 years before Socrates came. And, uh, but there were these people in Greece who started asking questions and they answered these questions in terms that were other than religious, other than the gods did it. Now, as it turns out, 753 is also an important time because the Greeks, if if there was nothing else about them that was good, is even in their religion, at least as their their Greek mythology uh, developed, itself became exceedingly philosophical. And their gods, if you remember uh, reading about Zeus and Neptune, uh, let's see, Neptune. Neptune was the Roman version. Poseidon, uh, I don't have all of it straight. These were just super men and women. They were ordinary people that had extraordinary powers. And in fact, one of the wonderful things about reading Greek mythology is that when you're reading it, you're reading a psychology text. I, I know it sounds funny to say that, but they were exploring how people thought and how they acted. In fact, uh, one of the crystal clear ways that this is true is one of the quote-unquote Greek gods was Nemesis. You have all heard the term Nemesis. That was the name of the Greek goddess for conscience. And our conscience was our nemesis because whenever we did whatever we wanted, our conscience would hunt us. Anybody ever have that experience in their life? Yes, that's right. And so nemesis became Lex Luthor or, uh, you know, the Joker or or something. And, And we started thinking nowadays in terms of superheroes. But the Greeks, I think some of them self-consciously put on their gods these aspects that were all too human. And many of them knew exactly what they were doing. So the ancient period began around 753, included all of the Greek philosophers, all the Roman philosophers, and roughly ended in 479 A.D., 479 AD is significant because that was the final sacking and burning of Rome. The Western Roman Empire was completely dissolved. It had been under siege, not literally, but it kept on getting sacked for about the 125 years before that. And uh, this Visigoth and that Goth and this barbarian tribe kept coming in and sacking Rome. As a just kind of a 
fun little thing. I, when I was living in Germany, I went to these people's houses, and they, and they had this fest. Germans like to throw parties for any excuse. And so this little tiny village was having this fest, and as it turned out, uh, the guy I was with, his best friend was the son of the baron. And so I got to go through the baron's castle at night. I had this personal, there was about eight of us in this group, and we got to go through this, this castle at night, and I got to try on the mail. It was really cool. But one of the really interesting things was, is when Rome was being sacked, I'm not even sure which time it was, but these barbarians loaded up their carts with Roman statues. Just think about that. How, that's crazy. You're going to haul hundreds and thousands of pounds of rocks over the Alps, but that's what they did. And eventually they got to this little valley and they're like, what on earth are we thinking? So they pushed these Roman statues off the cart and that was where they landed in Bensheim, uh, Germany. And so, so this baron has this castle and he has the largest collection of Roman statuary anywhere outside of Italy. It's, sorry, that had nothing to do with the sermon, but uh, it was an interesting fact, and I got to see it. So in 479, uh, began what is called by scholars today the pre-modern period. Many people think of it as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, and uh, to be honest, that's kind of an epithet. It's kind of an insult to call that period, that next period in history, the Dark Ages, because really there were things going on. It's just that uh, it wasn't Protestant and it wasn't Enlightenment. Key term, we'll get to the Enlightenment in a minute. But there was this minor uh, friar of some Catholic order. His name was Petrarch. And he decided one day, on April 26, 1336 to be exact, he decided, huh, I've never been on top of Mont Ventoux. I'm going to walk up there and see what it is. And so here's this Catholic priest, and he just decides one day to take a a walk up to the top of this 6,000-foot mountain. And he comes back down, and he writes a letter to a guy. And he says, this is my translation, dude, it was amazing. There were cliffs and there was beautiful trees and you should have seen the flowers and it was really cool. Nobody for the last 1,000 years had any kinds of thoughts like that. Nobody cared about mountains. The only people who cared about mountains were the engineers who had to figure out how do we get over these mountains, over to the other side. And so Petrarch, that day, April 26, 1336, began the end of the pre-modern period. Now, it took, obviously, several hundred years. And 300 years later, in 1637, René Descartes became the father of modern philosophy. And if you have heard of Descartes at all, you have heard his Latin phrase, cognito ergo sum. And what he said there, I think, therefore I am, was the result of what his experiment, and his experiment was, how skeptical can I be 
about everything. I want to disbelieve everything. And his goal in doing so was to find the base, to find the bottom line so that he can then build what we actually do know on a solid foundation. Descartes was a Catholic. Uh, He was a uh, fairly, um, I'm trying to think the right word, orthodox is not the right word. Um, He was a consistent Catholic. Uh, In fact, he died wanting to remain Catholic, even though the effect of what he did cut God completely out of the thought process, the thinking of what became the Enlightenment. Again, he didn't do so intentionally. He still believed in God when he died. But the result of his being skeptical about everything was ultimately what became the Enlightenment. Now, what is the Enlightenment? This is absolutely crucial. Uh, Descartes and a man named David Hume uh, were two leading thinkers. And what they wanted uh, people to get, ultimately what became the Enlightenment, is this uh, discussion between mostly English philosophers that had to do with the only thing that we can trust is our reason our thinking, our mulling it over inside of our brains. And then there was another group of philosophers who said, no, that's not the primary way we figure things out. The primary way we figure things out is by testing them and seeing with our senses what they are. And the first is rationalist and the second are empiricists. I'm sorry, I see some of you checking out Next week will be much more interesting, I hope. But I need to lay this out so that next week you can actually follow me. And so what these guys did is they, in effect, said there is no revelation. We cannot trust anything outside of either our mind or how we look at the world. And so this began what's called the Enlightenment Project. And we're going to be talking more about this because this is what the postmodernists are so uptight about and what they're so upset about. So that was the end of the pre-modern period and the beginning of the modern period. Along comes this guy named Immanuel Kant. And he is Tom's favorite philosopher, right, Tom? (laughs) He's always bringing him up. Now, what Kant did, um, and Kant can't be understood, so bear with me. What he did, thank you, I needed a chuckle. Uh, Kant took what Descartes and Hume said about skepticism, and he accepted it. And he said, okay, I will believe that's true, but I still want to hold on to my faith. I still want to hold on to the fact that there is a God. Now, whether... He actually believed in the real God. I would say he did not. But he had maybe some cultural Christianity that he didn't want to let go of. And what he did is he said, okay, if we can't trust anything outside 
of our brain and our experiences. And then they find, he finds, but we can't trust our reason to be objective. We can't trust our reason to be right about the world. So all of a sudden, there goes reason. Now, he did not say that. He would have disagreed. But by sucking out the fact that reason could be about what is really out there instead of what's just between our ears, he eliminated reason. Now, if you eliminate reason, you also eliminate experience. Because how do you, when you experience something, you reason about it, you think about it. And so, in effect, what he did is he said, okay, all you Enlightenment, all you English guys over there, you guys, all right, we'll accept that. But what he wanted to do, he, the critique of pure reason in 1781 was to say, okay, we're pushing that aside and we're putting faith over here. So, you guys, you do whatever you want, but faith is over here. And we're strong in our faith. We want to have our belief. What he did is he destroyed our, our ability to reason. And what the Christians have always said is, no, 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 no. God gave us reason. God gave us sight. But he also gave us faith. Now, over the next hundred or so years after Kant, uh, people going back and forth, believing, disbelieving, uh, all these things happen. And eventually you get to a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche, in 1882, basically told the world, God is dead. There is no God. Now, Kant went to church every Sunday. I'm sure if there was a Wednesday night thing, he still went to church on Wednesday night. Uh, all of these philosophers, they were still going to church because church is what you do. It's, it's where you go in the village. I mean, what else are you going to do on Sunday morning? There's no football. So they went to church. But Nietzsche came along and said, you guys, God's dead. There is no God. We have nothing to believe in God with. And he said, if that's true, and he did believe it was, there's no reason to have any morals. There's no reason to have any trust in our thoughts. We might as well just pursue power. And that was his whole will to power, his ubermensch, his not Superman, that's a mistranslation, his overman, his, his, his person who is above the fray, so to speak. And it wasn't until the 1960s when America finally realized that Nietzsche was right. Well, he was wrong. But our culture accepted it. And that's when the free love and the drug experimentations just went berserk. Because if there is no God, why on earth shouldn't we eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow we shall die. That is all a preface to what we're going to talk about next week. Now you can get a little bit of a taste by looking at your notes here of what we're going to talk about next week. But again... I had to be a little bit more academic tonight. Don't be afraid to come next week. I had to give you at least a shot over your bow at some pretty heady stuff 
so that you can now understand why the postmodernism people exist and have kind of some finger holds. Uh, I want to say one more thing before I end, and that was what uh, J.P. Moreland, my professor, said to me. And this is uh, 13 guys who are pursuing our doctor of ministry. We had just finished reading 3,000 pages. In fact, 6,000 pages because it was the second year of our, our term. And he said, guys, I want you to understand you're not going to get all of this. Thank you. I needed a laugh. He said, you're not going to get all of this. But being exposed to it, you will then be able to have some little footpaths in your brain so you can put these on the next time you come around to them. If you have any questions, please do come and ask me. I'll tell you, let me look that up. I don't know, and for the glory of God. So let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you that you are glorious. And thank you, Lord, that the Koheleth, the the preacher of Ecclesiastes, said at the very end of his book uh, exactly the wisdom that we need to know. And that is the end of the matter. After all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Lord, I pray that you will help us to realize that and to live that. Because you said, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we trust that, Lord. And we ask that you would enable us to live accordingly for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.